morning, good afternoon, hello, good evening, good morning, buenos dias, buongiorno. And if you're from the other side of the world, konnichiwa, ni hao, sasrikal, salavalekum, adab, namaskaram. Welcome to Scraps. It's a podcast miniseries that explores the stories that underpin the sparks of brilliance that led to many discoveries and innovation in academia and industry. I'm Arun Sridhar and my partner in crime is Jojo Platt. It's our utmost pleasure to bring a fantastic concept to you listeners. Hey Jojo, before we go any further, I think we should tell the listeners as to why we are doing this. Absolutely. I think each of us can pick up a journal and read the stories that are the results of so many different scientific experiments and and procedures. But what we don't hear are the stories behind the science, the stories that motivated people and inspired people to take on these difficult problems. Well said. I totally agree on that. I think it's a podcast that will explore the side of science that we rarely talk about. It's the elephant in the room that most of us want to know, but are too scared to ask. It is the aspect of the stories behind the science that we love it when we hear it, or we hate it in some cases when we experience it. But somehow when we hear it, we are so transfixed by it. It is about the people that make science happen. We're going to explore the people behind the science. It is the story of their drive, passion, personal reasoning and motivation that dictates why they do science and what they do in their chosen area. And our job is to tease out that information by asking the questions that you want us to ask. We will explore their journey from where they started to where they are now. We'll ask them questions that young trainees always want to ask, but may feel intimidated or overawed to ask of a senior innovator. And we want to discover their personal journeys. And you may ask why. Because it is their personal journey that dictates why they do what they do. Before we do that, we want to give you a chance to get to know each of us a little better. So, Arun, tell me, how did you get into science? My journey in science started uh, with my experience in clinical cardiology and cardiac surgery uh, back in India. I wanted to be a cardiac surgeon. Um, I even had all the requisites marks to actually be a cardiac surgeon. But I could not uh, do the kind of other um, geopolitical reasons that exists in India for the kids in the in the late 90s that many Indians would know. Um, and I joined one of the uh, very special or early courses that was that was started in India um, called Physician Assistant, which is a very established concept in the U.S., um, and I was doing my three years of coursework. And then in the last year, uh, with a very intensive kind of hospital training when you are 18 to 20 years old. And then the last year of, of the course, when, um, when you're 21, you get posted into a department. So I got posted in cardiac surgery and I got a chance to work with one of the most preeminent surgeons in the world um, called Dr. K.M. Cherian, who was one of the first ones to do a cardiac transplant in all of South Asia. And when I was operating with him on one of the pediatric cardiac surgery cases um, in the hospital, I was um, asked about my next steps in life. And Dr. Cherian at the time listened to everything that I had to say, and he said, 
you are way too smart for you to be doing cabbages and plumbing uh, in cardiac surgery. You need to go and do research. And I said, what do you mean? Like, do you not like me doing the work that I'm doing? Uh, <laughs> and he kind of said, no, no. Um, everything that we do in, in cardiology and cardiac surgery um, came from the bench to the bedside. Um, every single thing. The only two things that existed before 1953 was digitalis and aspirin. <laughs> and that is my initial trigger to move into science. And then I got a bit serious, applied for my GRE, and I ended up at the Ohio State University. And I'm a proud Buckeye Allen. The Ohio State. It is the Ohio State. Go Bucks. <laughs> so was that, was that career shift maybe one of the, the biggest risks you've taken in your professional life? Or is there something that stands out as, as even riskier? Um, I would probably say that wasn't the biggest risk uh, that I was taking. I think that was when you're young, you hardly know what the risks that you're taking. So I think that was just, I just saw that as an opportunity as the next kind of hurdle I needed to clear and coming from India, especially in case of some of your listeners, they'll know that resilience is almost inbuilt in the Indian system. So you hardly think about what the risk that you're taking. Um, but I think the biggest risk that I took was, when I moved from my job in pharmaceutical R&D uh, at GlaxoSmithKline uh, to the bioelectronics R&D um, when it was NN of one back in 2012. Um, and um, Chris Pham had just been announced as the one to head the unit internally. And I kind of met Chris at, at a lunch um, back um, in 2012. And we had just spoken, and then in typical kind of for people who know Chris Pham, in typical Chris fashion, he kind of took me through a long uh, interview process without me actually knowing that I was being interviewed when I thought that I was just really helping him uh, to get set up. And uh, I made the move to Bioelectronics as a one-year sabbatical to show the, the corporate executive team that this was not a flash in the pan, and this there was a sustainable portfolio of opportunity. What made it to be a big risk in my way was that I was married. I had a one and a half year old daughter and uh, my previous job in, in pharmaceutical R&D uh, around the time that I'd moved to bioelectronics was made, I was made redundant. So therefore I had no job to go back to, uh, which in a way made it both the biggest risk and, and also made me think, hey, what's there to lose? I will do this. I will figure out what's there in a year's time. And then if it doesn't work out, I'll probably look for another job afterwards. So that I would say is the biggest kind of turning point for me professionally in terms of my entry into kind of bioelectronic medicines and, and neuromodulation. And is there anything in your career path that you would go back and change? Um, to be honest, I think the person that I am is because of all the experiences that I've had. Um, as I said, the system of education, the way you kind of fight against everything and everybody around you, the sheer volume of people in India, it's like you learn from a very young age that you need to stand out to actually be listened to, to be seen. And that was pretty easy for me uh, in a way. And because my father was a very charismatic kind of um, person. He was one of the first people who led the uh, the sales team when innovator fertilization first came to India back in the late 70s. 
Um, and he was there when uh, the first test tube baby was ever delivered in India. So that kind of inspirations kind of just made it easier to have a goal. And even if there were hurdles in the way, you just kind of figure out that, oh, I just want to be in this. And it just makes you more resilient. So I would not change a thing, to be honest. What's in, in all of your years in, in science and, and technology, too, what is is there one thing that drives you crazy that, that scientists and researchers do? Uh, that's a difficult one, actually. Good question. Um, yes, I think there is one. Um, as scientists, we are always trained to ask the whys, right? We want to know why things work a certain way. Why does it happen X, Y, and Z um, a manner? And we want to find out the answers to the whys. But the biggest thing in the life is all about the what's. Like what happens when you change? What happens when I am discovering a new gene, when I'm discovering a new molecule? Uh, how does that affect the body? So I think that that focus on the why's sometimes drives me crazy, but I tell myself to be patient and kind of ask the what's. The other one, if I can add, Jojo, is the is the ability of people to kind of have or wanting to have all the data prior to making a decision. When decision decision making process in itself is very intuitive, people can say it's data driven, but you only need a certain amount of data. And I'm a big believer in the 20, 80, 80, 20 concept. So you collect 80% of the data in 20% of the time. And then the remaining time you are figuring out whether you're right or wrong. So I believe that as scientists, people usually want to have all the data in hand to make a decision and that time it takes to uh, to make a decision could be an opportunity cost uh, that, that could be lost in a situation in certain cases. So that can drive me crazy. And I, I, I think that's fascinating. I, I imagine as a scientist that there, there are a lot of um, things that, that can get in the way and, and differences in how you approach a problem. But the what is a very good question too. Um, and I think in the spirit that we are trying to expose the personal stories behind um, science and research, I'm going to ask you to go out a, a little bit on a limb and tell me what your worst or most embarrassing or most desperate moment in your pro professional, or if you want to get personal, um, What's been that worst moment for you? Yeah, uh, I think that was also one of the big turning points in my academic life, I would say. Um, I was a very good student all through my academic life. I was, I was very intuitive in picking up things. And then, as I told you, I moved from my clinical background in cardiology and cardiac surgery to um, OSU's biophysics program. Uh, that was my PhD topic. Um, call me crazy if you want to, but that's where I found my calling because I was very much interested in cardiac electrophysiology. So that's my interest in electrophysiology and, and neurophysiology, so to speak. So my advisor um, was working in cardiac electrophysiology from large animal all the way through molecular mechanisms. And I moved and I got a summer scholarship to come in a term early than the rest of the students who were admitted into the program. I did my wonderful rotation with my, who would become my advisor. Um, and 
Then I started my coursework in the in the fall quarter because in OSU everything was it was one of the few universities back then that still had quarter systems of education rather than semesters. So I started my first coursework in uh, in the in the fall quarter, and little did I know in the very first quarter I got a C in one of the biophysics courses. So as a person who has a scholarship, and most people will realize that if you're getting paid and a research assistantship or and a stipend. You need to maintain a good GPA. So I was immediately put into probation, um, and I basically had two quarters to pull myself out of that mess. And I think the biggest thing, and also the reason why I'm doing this, is because of the people and the belief that my advisor, um, Dr. Cynthia Carnes, actually believed in my ability. And if she hadn't seen me the previous quarter, she wouldn't have known my abilities or she somehow saw something in me that basically said that told her that she would support me. And she basically said, even if you come back to my lab, I don't want you to do any work. I just want you to focus on pulling yourself out of this mess and we'll worry about research. So I think that that type of special motherly care that she provided uh, in a place that was completely new to me uh, when I'm a 22 year old um, back at OSU uh, back in the day is is a very important part of who I am because that showed me that science is nothing without compassion. So that to me is the most embarrassing and the most desperate moment because there would not be an Arun that's standing today if not for that. I would have gone packing back home and I've probably been working in a hospital as a physician assistant uh, or done something else in life. So that's that's my most desperate and most embarrassing just because I had never scored so low in any 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 kind of subject before that. So, yeah, but in my defense, I was a clinician or I had a cardiology, cardiac surgery view and I was thrown into a biophysics course, which was all about alpha helices and beta sheets and structures and proteins and stuff. Uh, yeah, I learned to care about it a lot later, but I didn't care about it in the first quarter. So, yeah, that's my story. I, Arun, if if a C is your most embarrassing moment, we're going to have a tough time because I'll do laps around you there. And and I really love something that you just said too, which is science is nothing without compassion. And I, I think that that is something that, that needed to be um, reiterated because I see that quite a bit. And I see that in, um, in talking to the patients and, and especially the trial participants who are taking this journey with us. So I, I love that. I, please bookmark that. Science is not that. We thank our sponsors, Cortec. Please visit cortec-neuro.com for enabling tools for your neurophysiology research. Now, Jojo. Uh, enough of my monologue coming over to you. Um, I just learned something yesterday when you and I were talking. Um, you told me that you have actually worked in digital media players way before some of these things became mainstream and, uh, and other types of work. Um, so you actually had a very varied career in industries uh, beyond just um, research. So, and and science communication. So go on, tell me about, tell us about that. 
Well, I, I think one thing that's important to say, and I always say this because I partly out of insecurity and partly as a disclaimer and partly so that you guys will all sort of dumb down your conversations for me, but I'm not a scientist. I don't have an engineering degree. Um, I know that mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell because this was not my formal education and training. Um, I did start out in internet technology, sort of my first um, non-restaurant position uh, was with a company called Interview. And we developed uh, technology that helped to expedite video delivery over the internet. So back in the day, that was about 1996, everything was running on a 14.4 modem and the concept of delivery or delivering a video file on the internet was pretty problematic. Um, that was, that was interesting. I was young. I was a single mom, um, working, going to school, taking care of my kid and going through an IPO. And I was one of only two people on the finance team. So it was come to the office at six in the morning, work on the due diligence and the roadshow packaging, work till about six o'clock at night, go directly to school, go home, take care of my daughter, make sure she was in bed and then get up the next morning and do it all over again. And um, after the IPO, which was very successful, um, I decided that finance just really was not fun. And I saw some of the, all of the marketing expense reports come in from the sales and marketing teams. And I decided that they were having far more fun than I was. So I, uh, I notified my boss that I was making the leap over to marketing and uh, took the helm as marketing and communications director there. And, and that firm, I'm really grateful to interview, which eventually got purchased by Akamai Technologies in Boston. Um, it allowed me my first retirement. So I got to mess around after that and did a lot of really different things. I did real estate. I did uh consumer electronic devices. So uh, back before the iPod launched, we had about a, a five pound MP3 player that could hold a thousand songs. It was considered revolutionary. We OEM that out. Uh, I've been in social media, early social media before Twitter, before Facebook, before all of that, we did some college sites and uh, then went to work with a Feinstein on a couple of different initiatives. Um, and that stemmed out of a nonprofit that I was running. That's, that's a whole nother story and a whole bottle of scotch. Um, this nonprofit that I joined was in trouble with the IRS. And I was tasked to help settle that case. And then ultimately became the receiver for the foundation and distributed the last, I don't know, $40 million in assets. Um, some of which went to uh, a sepsis initiative, which is where I got to meet Dr. Kevin Tracy at the Feinstein. And my colleague and I ended up going to work directly with the Feinstein on the sepsis initiative. And then we followed on with another project in Parkinson's and telemedicine. And that became the next project, which was launching their center for bioelectronic medicine. And so right around the time that you were making that leap at Galvani, um, I was doing the same thing and, and I had wrapped up the foundation and became essentially a full-time consultant uh, working on bioelectronic medicine. That's fascinating and so unconventional, right? I think, and I think people love unconventional. But seriously, how did you kind of move from that into 
scientific communication and the editorial side of things that you work on currently, right? I mean, that's that's quite a leap from where you were in marketing to to science communication and, and kind of dealing with everything that you're dealing with right now. How did that happen? Well, I think kind of the common thread throughout my career, no matter what I've done, has been strategic development and operationalizing um, strategic plans, whether that's in communications or creating partnerships. And my time at the Feinstein um, afforded me the ability to build this incredible network of um, people across all areas of science and technology. And as a non-scientist, I was able to, a lot of my interactions really generated some of those personal stories that don't get told in the journals. And so I wanted to, um, I wanted to capture some of those stories for posterity. So I've done some of that, a little bit of that, um, on behind the bench, but I really am looking forward to this podcast, adding to that and giving more access to more people about stories, not just in, I mean, I sort of am a little hyper-focused in neurotechnology, but I want us to be able to, to get stories across all areas of science and yeah. So, and then coming from all the the different fields and the journey that you've had, coming into science, I think there must have been some big shock that you had that made you kind of sit up and go, "Whoa, this is this is this the what I signed up for?" Um, how do you kind of <laughs> what was that, and and how do you kind of how did you react to that? I don't know that I even realized I had signed up for it. I think it was it just sort of all migrated and happened naturally that I wasn't even aware that this was becoming a career path for me. And I was just sort of taking the next project that came along. And um, it's intimidating. You guys, you're, you're really smart people. And, and you, you say big words and have big concepts and big ideas. And um, I think sort of as a defense mechanism, I can, I know enough to be dangerous. So if I'm around an engineer, I'll start talking more in, in biology because we're probably closer to the same skill level there. And when I'm with a biologist, I start to talk more about engineering. It's it's a deflection mechanism, but it keeps the conversation going. And, and I learn something every single time. So I, I you can be afraid of something that you don't know, or you can just grab hold and go for the ride. No, I think that is that is an important thing um, because uh, self confidence is 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 very much in positivity, especially among scientists, right? I think we are all trained, and I know people actually trained to go up on stage and deliver their presentations, etc. And they do it many many times, but there is something about attitude because that is something that is that that is that comes from within. And I think that is important and pair that with a a good deal of self-confidence. And I think, and the ability to communicate to a 12 year old, which, which is a deadly combination and, and well, kudos to you on the doing that. Um, And what is one, I think it's important to kind of ask you this, right? Because with all of your various moves across uh, various industries and, and, and work streams, I'm sure people have come up, and said that, hey, I did not know that you were this or you were, um, there was, there must be some common misconception uh, that people must have had about you, uh, in your opinion. And 
How do you want to break that? Can you share that with us? Yeah, actually, I think the the biggest questioners of or the biggest people in my life who misunderstand what I do are my own kids, um, especially because I started doing this when they were much younger. Um, they they had their words kind of failed them. So the best that they could come up with when somebody said, oh, what does your mom do? Their, their response was, oh, she's a science pimp. <laughs> and um, it, it's a little silly, but at the time it it was fairly accurate. I mean, my job was to find people with a need and pair them together with somebody who could serve that need and create collaborations. So technically I suppose they're, they're not far off. Um, I think it's, it's difficult for people to understand what I do um, because I do so many different things, whether it's helping a European company break into the U S market or helping an individual investigator um, to understand his or her positioning in the professional realm and get them elevated to the next level and developing strategies for, for institutions to, you know, advance their position um, among, among peers and among potential students and other participants um, in the field. I, I do it all. So there is no right answer. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, that's wonderful. Um, just between us, what do people ask you about science and scientists? That's a good question. You always come up to you and say, are scientists really snobbish? Is, is that is they, what they ask you? Or do they ask you something that's weird and wonderful? Share that with us. I think one of the strange questions I, I get are, um, and this, is, this, is, this happened even early, early, early on in my career. I've worked with some brilliant people that were solving some of the, the Internet's toughest challenges at the time. Um, and they were brilliant. They came up with the answers, but at the end of the day, they could barely tie their shoe or couldn't figure out why the check that they had in their hand didn't make it to the bank. Um, they, they lacked some life skills. And I think there's, there's a, a little bit of a nutty professor um, perception that happens among my ni- non-scientist friends. Um, and it, it isn't until the last few years that being nerdy was really cool. So um, I'm appreciative of that transition. I, I think that's, that's a tough question. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I know. Um, and that's why I ask it, right? Because we're going to do this to every single guest that, that goes, that's going to come on the podcast. So folks, this is what it's going to be, right? Um, so do join us, um, me, Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt on Scraps as we take the journey with our guests on each episode, as we walk beside them, reflecting on their paths that they've taken to date, and as we watch them grow in front of our virtual eyes to where they are today. And at the end of of all of this, we hope that this becomes an interesting narrative where trainees, junior and established scientists, lay people alike, can take solace in the fact that there is never a prescription for success but us creating our own paths to glory. We hope you will all join us when we join a very special guest for our inaugural episode. There's no way that any of you will ever guess who this is. I promise you that. You're in for a wild ride. Our sound editor is Sayantan Chandran. The soundtrack was Digger by Acid Dad. 
You can find their collections on Apple iTunes Store, Google Play Store, Spotify, and many other platforms. Our main sponsor is Cortec. You can find their information at cortec-neuro.com. This is Arun and Jojo signing off. Hey.